It's been over a year now since In The Key Of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap Unaware of my proclivities to self-sabotage to country soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to this next episode of In The Key Of Q, featuring the India-born artist Ash Devine. Ash has two fantastic albums out at the moment. The first is Mother, quite subdued this one, quite melancholy. And the second is the more upbeat The Sex Issue. They're both available on all the usual streaming platforms, so do take a listen once you finish listening to this episode. And in our conversation, we talk about all sorts of things from the problems he faced growing up as a gay boy to the body dysmorphia issues that many of us can face as adults. And if you wish to support the podcast and help us stay in production, please do pop on over to patreon.com slash in the key of Q. And of course, rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it on your usual podcast provider. But without further ado, here is the wonderful Ash Devine. Enjoy. I think as men, we've been in intergenerationally taught don't be too vulnerable about your body image um just make fun of quote-unquote man boobs it's 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 cool it's you know but people feel it they just don't talk about it hello there and welcome to in the key of q it's dan hall here i really love popular music and have spent my life translating heteronormative narratives into my gay experience but I really think it's time that I stopped translating. And so in this podcast, I want to speak to queer musicians from around the world who were singing about hee-hee narratives, these really important songs, which when I was a teenager and desperately needed these narratives, they were completely absent. I am hugely grateful to welcome this week, all the way from the United States, the wonderful Ash Devine. Ash, hello. Hi, Dan, how are you? I think home is where you make it. The home is where you can feel your most complete being, most liberated being. Um, And to me, that was, of course, the home wherever I went, I made uh, a home for, for myself. And I think that's important because we need to strive to find a the best we can to, to create a space that's comfortable for us, that we can feel free. And so we can actually just be as humans as we are meant to be, uh, as free as possible. Um, so to me, that was first enabled in San Francisco because of the people there. I was accepted in San Francisco. Um, I was able to make music. I was the first time I was financially independent in a way that I was able to get into the studio and make their music and make the arrangements exactly as I wanted to. So, um, San Francisco is home. Now the idea of motherland is a very complex one for me because it's full of conflict, conflict in so many different ways. So India, you know, my, I'm a brand person and 
I um, am ethnically Indian, and when I lived in India, I I was a really chubby big kid, and I don't talk much about it. Actually, I'm gonna, you know, this is probably the first place I'm talking about it. I had a really big chest, um, and I was big, and so I was bullied a lot. I was different and, uh, being accepted was, was difficult. It was, I, it was, India was a bit of a cruel place for me, uh, when I lived there. Um, and you know, I was working to pay the rent, even in high school, I have worked from very early age because I wanted to be financially independent. And, uh, I remember the grueling summers of India and I remember being in buses and Buses in India felt to me like very violent places. But at the same time, so there's all this difficult business happening. And also being gay uh, was not acceptable. It was something um, of sinful, bad, and something that deserved punishment in some way, um, which is not, which is a very common story. We All of us uh, queer people can relate to at some point in our lives, we've had to come out. And for those lucky few, coming out has been a good experience. But for a lot of us, it's not been such a great experience. So if you extrapolate that into physical violence, that would happen in India. And it happened to me. So it was difficult. But on the other hand, when I left New Delhi and I would go into the mountains, the Himalayas, or when, I would go, when I'd go to then Bombay, Mumbai, it's such a progressive place and people are incredible. And so it created this like big conflict between India and I. So I really couldn't ever see India as motherland and I have a bit of a conflicted relationship with it. So I don't think I have motherland. I have a home and a homeland, which is um, really, you know, I'm just, I just moved to New York. So I'm just coming to learn no more about New York. I can't call myself a New Yorker, but I lived in San Francisco for over a decade. And that to me is home. It's like the mother I uh, never had. I want to talk about mental health care too. You know, as artists, we, there are lots of ups and downs. And as artists, we have to be porous people. And being porous means we have to understand how to draw much better lines than to inflict emotion that's coming good or bad or whatever kind it is coming our way to separate that from self. And, you know, it's a constant, I don't think I fully worked it out yet. I tend to be a very porous and sensitive being. And, uh, at that time I was, when I was working through the album, I had to, this is what, this is working through the first album. We're working through the first album. Yes. Yeah. And I don't want to say it was re-traumatizing, but it reminded me through that. I realized that I, uh, was suffering from low grade depression. So I needed to take care of myself and, uh, I was already seeing a therapist, but I also at that time decided to, for the first time, use pills that could get me out of the hole of depression to at least get the help that I could. Uh, mentally from these incredible therapists that I was seeing. And I did. And that completing the album, the catharsis, the realization that I have been through some shit. Can I say that worked on your podcast? You can indeed. <laughs> okay. In life, that realization made me realize that I need to take better care of myself. And that whole thing uh, catalyzed into 
the sex issue. And then working through this catharsis sort of that you talked about sort of hits. And I found myself making these like really upbeat beats. And I just showed up at the studio and the first song I showed up with these beats with, 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 um, with like these South Asian drums and, um, this like Kawali beat in it. And I was like, I'm going to fuck it all up and st- and like mix it all up and turn it into something that's just, you know, that is fun and that represents me and all my like diverse experiences. And I brought that beat to the studio and Bo, my producer, who I love very much, uh, who gets me, gets my work and through the transition to, through mother into the sex issue, which are completely different albums. He gets it. Um, he's like, yes, let's make a song with this, uh, this, uh, this beat. So he, he on the side will start working the beat and I started writing the song in one day comes out BBC. <laughs> it's, and BBC is actually, uh, it's a really funny song and it, uh, it's a, um, it's an observation, a take, uh, a joke on how people are fetishized stereotypes, um, and, um, uh, the idea that a brown cock is going to be a big brown cock and that it is going to be, you know, the, the idea is that a brown person, like, some of the experiences are like a brown person uh, or a BBC will be the top, you know, like all these ideas that exist out there <laughs> around um, color and sexuality um, shows up in this, in this song and it's, um, it makes fun of it. And actually, interestingly, BBC came uh, came uh, a, a week or two weeks after WAP by Cardi B came, and so WAP was like owning female brown sexuality, and this I see is also owning uh, male brown sexuality uh, in a way. The closest I can come to to having an empathy with that is what I face in the straight world often, which is, do you know what? You're welcome at our table. As long as you're fun, yeah. And if you if you need to take a shopping, yeah. <laughs> but aren't those tropes so annoying? Because it's 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 like whenever you start in a new workplace, there's always someone who comes up to you and bless them. It's usually someone younger. It's usually someone in their twenties who are like, "Oh my god, I'm so glad you started here. You can be my gay best friend." It's, it's annoying, and we need to change these stereotypes because we want to all be seen as individuals. We can get angry about it. And we can, uh, but anger is going to take a lot longer for us to have people realize that, uh, it is not okay to categorize people, uh, for, and especially see people as who you think they are as, as opposed to individuals that they are. Uh, but I think humor can get us there quicker and humor helps us laugh 
together. And I think it brings people together. So I have learned that over time, especially, you know, being the, being the chubby kid in the room, I have understood how to use humor in order to make friends. I also want to establish that, which on social media, people often dilute is the black experience is a very different experience than, um, a, uh, a, a, a South Asian experience, than a Latina experience, than than really than a, obviously a white experience, for many reasons. The civil rights movement was really an iteration of the nonviolence movement that Gandhi was doing in India. So they're very in, uh, in, in, intrinsically related in a way through history, and there are so many parallels in what the civil rights movement and the rights and um, experiences uh, of people and the, inter the similarities of intergenerational uh, effects of colonization of trauma that we all share. Yet, the Black experience is very different from uh, another, you know, from the South Asian experience. And the reason why I want to double down on that is because on social media, there's a lot of times people just dilute and confuse and, um, you know, even a, a well-intentioned person is trying to, you know, play diverse and any brown person is not every brown person, you know, like, do you know what I mean? Like a black person is a black person, uh, an Indian person is an Indian person. Now this thing is also double-edged sword because when we start to talk about black issues or, uh, South Asian issues or queer issues, we run also the risk. We, we need to talk about it, but we need to talk about it in a balanced way. And I don't think we as a society have come to a balance yet. When we talk about this, we run the risk of uh, erasing individual identity because not every black person has a black experience. Not every queer person has the general queer experience. You know, the tropes that we talked about that you and I both experience, experience may not be the experience of, um, of a gay person growing up in a country where, um, or growing up in a culture where homosexuality is accepted for generations by generations is like any other thing. Um, so while we should talk about intersectional issues and um, social issues as a group, to understand the general shape of what the experience is, uh, I think we need to find a balance between individual experience and the collective experience. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. The first people we learn our attachment from is mother. 
some of us learn secure attachment. We learn uh, in our lives to attach and be safe and secure in terms of reaching out to people. We feel safe being vulnerable around each other. That took me work. Um, some of us have trust issues. All of that stuff <clears throat> to a great degree stems from how we first learn to attach to the one being who we understood attachment from, which is mother. So it's a complex relationship for everyone if we really sit down and think about how it's affected our lives. And the work for me is to come to and come to see with empathy that my mother tried the best she could. And yes, we have a conflicted relationship. Yes, my coming out was very difficult for her, but she is herself a force. That is who she is. And I have to draw my own lines and boundaries. Knowing that it would likely cause a schism in your family, what was that tipping point that just made you go, I, I can't do this anymore? So I did not come out in New Delhi. It was and it stood as a violent place. And its personal safety was most important to me. So I came out when I came to America and I knew I could support myself here in America. And uh, I was independent is when I felt safe to come out. I was dating a girl who I, you know, didn't want to uh, continue dating for obvious reasons. But I also felt like I was really um, lying to her. She was this incredible person. For every queer person, at some point they will come out. And that is a moment that should not be stolen from them. That is their moment. And, you know, I came out to my sister and then she came out to my family for me, you know, and that was uh, quite heartbreaking for me because I wanted to come out to my family in my own way. That was my moment. It became very difficult. And in their minds, they tried the best to get me off the wrong path. So these ideas of wrongness and sin, etc., gives gives being queer this, this idea that, oh, you'll be caught and then you'll be seen as queer, or this idea of furtive and something bad and something ugly and something um something uh that can only happen in the shadows. There's always that sense and in a nutshell, coming out was very difficult uh, with my family and I've spent years in therapy to understand how to be empathetic towards them. And it's hard, you know, I was angry and I was sad and it really triggered a long depression for me and I was suicidal. Uh, music saved me, mental health care saved me and I am in a much better place now. I'm writing music and I'm liberated. And there is that sense, often when we do come out, the reaction that we get from people, I have to say, I, I was lucky and didn't get this from my own family, but the common stories we hear are often, this is very difficult for me, is the reaction. And, and I'm not surprised that you would be angry with that reaction because it must be very tempting to go, this isn't fucking about you. There's, there's a through line in that, of that we are sometimes seen as being having to take care of the other person when it really is our story. Oh, will you be my best friend? Or it hurt me that you lied to me or you can be open to open with me. It suddenly becomes their story. So, and of course, you know, a straight person or a, or a non-queer person would probably not have to experience that because it's such an accepted thing. 
imagine, okay, imagine if I were, if I was straight and I came out to you said, you know, I'm into girls and you'd be like, well, it, it pains me a lot to say that you didn't feel comfortable sharing that with me sooner. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> that'd be really funny. And it's particularly annoying because it's not as if as queer people, our world isn't drowning in heteronormative expectation and visuals anyway. So that sense of those slithers we can get of identifying moments that we have in our lives are then immediately flipped around to suddenly it's from a heteronormative perspective again. So instead of you shining a light about your own queer identity, it suddenly becomes how your queer identity is distressing a straight person. Yeah. Why can't it just be, okay, Tell me more, I want to know everything. Wouldn't that be great? Dick pics. Watch it into white only. Watch it into no fans. Watch it into no Asians. Watch it into no fans. Watch it into... It's like, I also think it's really funny with, with singers or with movie stars and people, if they are outed or they come out, or even people go, you know, oh, well, movie stars or, or famous people can't come out because then straight audiences won't like them. And you and I always think, why won't straight audiences like them? Is it because they realize they can't fuck them? Because chances are they were never going to fuck them anyway. It's like, well, it's like, yeah, it's like, what? What, you're disappointed now because the chances of you fucking them is zero? They were zero anyway. I suspect that <clears throat> movie stars who don't come out or like George Michael wasn't coming out is probably not coming out because somebody in the industry who holds the purse strings is saying that will not sell. And they don't understand the audience. This Vogue interview that uh, Beyonce gave, I think it was in 2000. 18, I want to say, and she does very rare interviews. And for that Vogue edition, she took of Beyonce, she took over the whole cover and the style of the entire like issue. And she wrote her own questions and like interviewed. And one of those things she said is even in 2018, she hears things like black don't sell about her work. So if one of the top pop stars in the world is experiencing that imagine what somebody who is either emerging or somebody who looks like somebody not many other people out there would experience so it's it's all very telling in our black queer america special episodes that is talked about carrington kelso says in that he he's the guest presenter on it and he talks with his guests about how really good quality black and brown queer artists are left floundering with 400 followers on Spotify whilst hugely mediocre white singers are selling out stadiums. I think any artist who actually has the, the courage to publish music, to put it out there for a consumption, to be out there performing whether it's a small venue or stadiums is to be respected whether they, whatever color, whatever background they're from. But my point is there is always more room and there's no, there's this artificial idea that this is not going to sell. And that is not the artist's problem. That is not the mediocre white artist's problem that, you know, or the supposed mediocre white artist's problem. 
this is the problem of not the artists and we shouldn't be pointing fingers at the artists. We should be pointing fingers at the gatekeepers. That's the problem. People who have the money are unwilling to spend that money on promoting all the, uh, the, the artists that your guest was talking about who, who might be flandering. Have a, if you've not already, have a listen to our very first episode of the Key of Q with an artist called Matt Fischel because he opens his album his very first album called Not Thinking Straight with a song called Radio Friendly Pop Song. And that was purely about, he's a brilliant, brilliant pop songwriter, really, really good. And the whole album is magic. And that first song is all about him taking his tunes into big execs and them all, and he describes it wonderfully. He says, you know, I'm always in a big room and they're always in a big chair and I'm in a smaller chair. And they're always saying, you've got a great voice, your tunes are fantastic. You know how to tell a story, but you've got to cut the gay stuff. That is just incredible. Uh, in <laughs> wow, stupendous in a way. And I certainly hope with this podcast that it goes some way to chipping away the power of those execs. Because something I've been saying a lot is it's just as easy to double click an Ash Divine song as it is to double click on a Beyonce song. So suddenly there's a lot more of a level playing field. More power, more power. I'm into that. Definitely. <laughs> I was very taken when you talked about being sort of the fat kid when you were growing up. It's, it's something that I was as well. And I've been very struck as an adult how my low self-esteem from being fat as a kid and as a teenager, I think has really led into some very dysfunctional attitudes towards sex and and validity using sex as a way to find validity as to whether i'm attractive or not and almost has led to even away from sex people pleasing just constantly feeling like i'm swimming against the tide to be accepted body image is one thing and it gets uh, formed very early on um you know there are things that can happen in people's lives that for example, you know, I was a fat kid and someone who I love very much, very close to me, uh, as a child pulled on my waist and said, look, if you don't exercise, that's just going to grow bigger. And now that pull remains. I can almost feel it in my body. It was just one time, but that put such a dent in my um, psychological sense of body that it still remains even though I've lost all the weight around my waist and my flanks, I can still feel that pinch. So, and this happened when maybe I was six or eight, very form, uh, formative. And then, you know, I growing up, I was never really into sports. And the reason why I wasn't in sports, which further exacerbated the issue was my father would spend all his time watching sports with the kids who were into sports. And I wasn't the sportiest person. So, Sports to me became the reason why I lost my father and I stayed, started staying in and I would read a lot. Um, I would write and sing a lot. So exercise sort of wasn't there. And, uh, because of all the, all that was going on. And also if you tie in and I haven't talked much about it, but there's a song called Unfurler on the, on the sex issue. It's about abuse. And when you throw an abuse into that, it really fucks you up and breaks you 
into pieces of who you are, not even physically as a body, as a person who can even control their or own their body, whether it's even in your, uh, whether you can even own your own body becomes a question. So with all those things that were happening for me, uh, my body image issues are really, really terrible. I had gynecomastia and it was painful because at the end of the day, after being bullied and like whatever else was going on, I'd have bruises in my chest some days and it was just very painful. So I had a very, uh, flawed and fucked up sense of my, the shape of my body. Then you start to want to control your sexuality and control your body by using and seeing how powerful it is by hooking up by having objectified anonymous sex and sex issue as an album talks about that you know sleep with someone else is a song that talks about it how you know i love and loathe myself at the same time uh because while i feel desired i also hate myself for objectifying myself to just come feel alive that that my body belongs to me and i can talk about it now because i've talked about it for years with, with my therapist work through the stuff into being in steady stable relationships, which are monogamous. So, you know, it does impact all of the stuff comes together, and, but it is possible to manage and separate ourselves from, uh, from body image issues. Hey, this is John from the Song Surfing Podcast. Song Surfing is a playlist of independent music pulled from the far reaches of the internet. I've been searching for music on Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Spotify, Slaps, Audius, Instagram, and a few others. And in each episode of Song Surfing, I present some excellent tunes by a diverse group of interesting independent artists. So if you like to discover new artists and explore some music from around the world, then come Song Surfing with me. Song Surfing is available on all podcast apps as well as Spotify and Amazon. I started exercising a lot in order to feel alive and break free, not to be in shape. I, I didn't want to be a muscle bunny. I, I'm not attracted to that kind of body. I'm attracted to more the guy next door sort of being. These circuit parties, etc. I mean, good for them. I don't particularly care. I find them slightly twee, like a bunch of like uh, masculine guys in like these weird white shirts doing drugs. Like, okay, it gets, I mean, I haven't been to a white circuit party, but I imagine after a while it probably gets really repetitive because everybody is, has to be muscular. Everybody has to wear white. I mean, there's no variety what is the point in the in the wearing white thing because i've never been to one and they just sound like hell to me 
I have no idea. Uh, I think like, if I did go to one, I'd go and I'd be all in red because it's just <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I like white, but like a white party, I don't know what that, what that stands for, but, you know, I'm, they're doing a lot of Coke and Coke is white. So maybe there's that. I don't know. It's a, it's a subculture. It's, it's something to be looked at as an anthropological sort of study, like what is going on there sort of thing. But I, uh, I do think men, whether queer or not, do not talk enough about body and shape. I'm not just talking about body positivity. I'm just talking about even just body where people are, whether accept or not, but men aren't open. And I think it's because of some early ideas of what masculinity is, has sort of seeped into this. You know, when you talk about plus size models, what do you think? You think a woman. We There aren't as many men who are talking so vocally about body dysmorphia, body image issues, challenged with sex and sexuality are indeed impacting everybody whether it's men or women queer or straight it, it does impact all of us i think as men we've been in intergenerationally taught not not to be too vulnerable not, um, i think men have it it's 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 the it's the artifact of like toxicity of masculinity that's been passed on is like don't talk about it don't be too vulnerable about your body image um just make fun of quote-unquote man boobs it's 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 cool it's you know but people feel it they just don't talk about it What do you feel your 15-year-old self would think, Ash, of the music that you make and the life that you lead now? My 15-year-old self would be so delighted and would want to hang out with me. My 15-year-old self would say, hey, can, can we get coffee? Can you tell me how you did this? <laughs> can, we, can we hang out? Can you tell me what I need to know now? Do you think he would recognize himself or would you no. be a stranger? No, a complete stranger would not recognize. This 15-year-old this child was being bullied, was uh, in a foreign place, was not accepted, was on the fringe, always trying to survive, in hiding, in a shell, unaware of the powers that you know the the universe that the great beyond the mother whoever it is had of creativity that, that had been bestowed upon me didn't realize any of that didn't think he was beautiful didn't think he was uh desired wanted um attractive let alone popular but i do think that having observed people from the sidelines, having been the observer, has given me a certain eye, which, as an artist, one needs. Yeah. Now then, Ash, for people listening to this now who have completely fallen in love with you, where can they find you online and where can they find your music? You can find me at 
A-I-S-H-D-I-V-I-N-E, pronounced Ash Divine, anywhere online, ashdivine.com, instagram.com slash ashdivine, and on Spotify, Ash Divine. I can be found there. And Ash, if there was one song of yours in your catalogue that would be a great gateway song into your material, a song that for people who didn't know your stuff would completely draw them in and make them want to listen to everything you've ever recorded, what would that one song be? And we'll use that to leave the show. That is such a tough question because my work as a signature has a lot of landscape. On the one hand, you have these purely acoustic string ensembles. On the other end, you have something very like craft worky, like electronic Donna Summer thing happening. I would leave, I think, lyrically, and the idea of the sex issue is completely captured in the song, in the title track, The Sex Issue. It talks about gender. It talks about sexuality. It talks about our ideas of relationships. It's got humor. And um, it is like a straight-up minimalist 80s like punch. Uh, the, the title track, The Sex Issue. thank you so much for for coming on to in the key of key it's been wonderful to have you and it's probably a bit presumptuous but i'd love it if you came back again uh when you've got some more material to talk about because you've just got such an interesting perspective on things and we do have limited time so please please do come on back absolutely i'd love to dan it's been my pleasure thank you so much and thank you so much for doing this for for all of us Many thanks for listening to this episode with Ash Devine. And remember, there's exclusive content over at patreon.com slash in the key of Q. There you can support the show for as little as five US dollars a month. Tell me what you thought about today's episode with Ash. The pod's on social media at in the key of Q or email me direct on podcast at in the key of Q.com. And rate and review the show on your podcast provider. It really, really helps. Our theme is by Pauline Edu at unstoppablemonsters.com and our publicist is Paul Smith at paulwsmith at gmail.com. 
Many thanks to Karjan Kantha and Murray Lang for their support in making this episode. The show is presented and produced by me, Dan Hall, and is made at Pup Media Consultancy. See you next Tuesday. This is-